We're starting a new series today. We're in the book of Ruth, um, and uh, I have only 25 minutes, so you're going to have to forgive me. I'm going to have to rush through this. It's a little bit of a Bible study focus. I think we're going to get a little bit into the book of Ruth. Um, why are we doing this? Here's the, here's, here's, here's the big idea. So the Bible, the scriptures, I'm actually going to get one. Can I lift, can I nick that one? Thank you, thank you. Um, the scriptures uh, is one big story. It tells one big story of redemption. And that story of redemption is made up by a lot of different smaller stories of redemption in the scriptures along the way. And those little stories of redemption push along the big story of redemption in the scriptures. Um, what are we talking about when we say redemption? We mean God's saving work in the world. We mean his rescue. We mean his us finding home, finding acceptance, finding forgiveness, finding belonging in, in God. And so over the next month, as I said, we're gonna study this book of Ruth um, it's an ancient text that I hope will really help us explore uh, these themes of God's saving work of redemption. Hopefully it'll help us broaden our understanding, broaden our perspective um, of, of that, of God's redemptive work. Um, there's no coincidence that we're doing this series right in the midst of our news cycle and our cultural moment around Brexit. It's no coincidence that we thought we would use this book as a bit of a commentary on that. Not that we're going to take any, we're not taking any political position on Brexit. We're not talking about Brexit. We're talking about um, what it might mean for us as we engage the story of Ruth uh, to pay attention to the hints and the pointers um, that speak to the questions that are raised in a world that is undergoing things like Brexit. Um, so it's amazing what an ancient text like Ruth can actually speak and say to us in the modern world. So, so that's where we're going. So let me just set some context. So the book of Ruth is a short story. It's a little vignette of a story between Judges and Samuel. And so from Genesis right through to the age of the Judges, the Bible's story is dominated by these big characters, yeah? We have Noah and the ark. We have Abraham, the father of faith. We have Jacob in his ladder. We have Joseph in his technicolor dream coat, I suppose. <laughs> we have Moses um, and the law and given at Mount Sinai. We have Joshua and Samson and Gideon, these great heroes of Israel. And all these heroes experience miracles and they experience, um, they, they're marked with greatness. They're marked with greatness. But at last, in this book of Ruth, and um, we meet some ordinary people like you and like me. So in Ruth, there will not be parting of the sea or holding of the sun in the sky. Um, there will not be miracles or angels or action, adventure, set pieces in the book of Ruth. This is a story of ordinary people doing ordinary things that happen to all of us. But yet God is very present in this story. He is at work behind the scenes, and we'll see that as we go. And not only is Ruth a story about ordinary people, but it's actually a story where women are front and center. It's a story that demotes the usual patriarchal focus and emphasis. And so Ruth is giving us this perspective, a perspective. It's a perspective-giving story. 
It's giving us perspective, I hope, on the nature of this bigger story. So this we story is hopefully going to give us perspective on this bigger story of God's redemptive work in the world. So let's open up to Ruth. Um, Ruth chapter 1. We're going to just focus on the first chapter today. So I'm going to read it very quickly. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Um, It'll be on the screen behind me. Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, the wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malhon and Kilion. They were Aphrodites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha, Orpa, and one and the other Ruth. After they had lived here about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left with her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi turned to her two daughters-in-law and said, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, and you, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons that could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, and even give birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. And where you will stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be a Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. A little hint of hope at the end there. So what's going on here? The story is a story of a man named Elimelech, his wife, and his two grown-up sons. And you're all wondering, what has this got to do with anything about Brexit or anything about the world we live in today? What are we going to draw out of this passage? Um, well, this is an, there's an economic crisis has just hit, the famine. 
And as we know, economic crisis often hits the most ordinary and the poorest. And this family have suffered a loss, great loss and devastation. They've lost their home, their farm, their property, and really their livelihood. Devastation has hit. And so they leave the land of Israel and they move to the land of Moab because they've heard, I suppose, that there are some opportunities there. And not long after they arrive in Moab, their two sons marry two Moabite women. One marries a Moabite woman named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and the other married a Moabite woman named Ruth. Not long after that, the dad, the father, dies suddenly, we've just read, and Naomi is this widow who's living in a foreign land in Moab with her two sons and her two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And that seems, I guess, okay, that's not a great hopeful story in a sense. She's a widow, but she has her two sons and her two daughters-in-law. And that, hap- that lasts for 10 years until suddenly the two sons also die. We see that in verse five. And so the picture's getting grimmer and grimmer. Naomi has lost everything. I mean, she's, she's lost her home. I mean, picture that she's lost her home. She's in a foreign land. She's lost her husband and she's lost her two sons. Naomi has nothing left, nothing left to keep her in Moab. And so she decides to return home to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not really a a place of notoriety at this point. This is just an interesting little detail in the story. We know Bethlehem, of course. Of course, the two daughter-in-laws, they are now widows, Orpah and, and Ruth. And they decide to return with Naomi to the homeland. They decide to go with their mother-in-law back to Bethlehem as Moabites. And so they set out and somewhere on the road, some, at some point, Naomi stops and she turns to Orpah and Ruth and she just, she thanks them for their kindness. But she tells them that she has nothing to offer them. That whole piece about, will I remarry? Can I have sons? Will you wait for them to grow up to remarry? That whole piece is really saying like, I don't have anything to offer you. You're, you're limiting yourself to be associated with me. You know, you have been so kind to me. And she encourages them to just to go back to their home of Moab where they can rebuild a new life for themselves in their own homeland. And so you have this picture, just imagine this, of these three women standing on the road, just weeping. Just picture that scene. It's really moving. And Orpah kisses Naomi and she decides to return to Moab. But Ruth won't leave. And in verse 14, we get these famous, it actually says that Ruth clung to Naomi. We get these famous words, where you will go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. These are the remarkable words of Ruth, a Moabite, to Naomi, saying that your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. These are remarkable, and we'll explore these in a moment. And so the story continues that Naomi really gives up her imploring, and she lets Ruth come with her, and they return to Bethlehem, but there's something really remarkable going on here in this very somewhat dire but ordinary, grim, personal, intimate story, but particularly between the relationship between these two characters of Naomi and Ruth. So I want to just share a few observations 
um, as quickly as I can. Um, bear with me this morning as I make my way through this. About this story that will help us understand the dynamics of what is actually going on here at all. And how it might even speak to this big redemptive story of what God is doing in the world. So here's the first thing. The embrace of kindness. The embrace of kindness. In the story, the remarkable thing happens between Ruth and Naomi. Remember, Naomi has nothing. And after her thoughts turn back home, because she's nothing to keep her in Moab, and this is the first appearance of the Hebrew word teshuva, which means repentance or return. And the way that that word is actually used in this passage means that this idea of return, repentance or returning back home is not just a one-off event, but it's a, kind of, it's a kind of process. It's a kind of journeying back with God. She's gonna return to her homeland, probably with her head held in some shame and with really not much hope. And then we get this, other words, this Hebrew word in verse eight, hesed. Hesed means loving kindness. And in this case, it's referred to as an act that is done toward the dead, if you read verse eight. The rabbis said that this act uh, was the, preparial, the, the preparing of the burial shroud. Essentially, the loving kindness that Orpah and Ruth showed to Naomi was that they didn't demand compensation from her after the husbands died. That would have been the norm, that they would have got compensation from Naomi for their husbands dying. And so they don't press with that and they let her not have to give compensation. There's a, a loving kindness, there's a kindness there. And so Ruth and Orpah actually continue to care for their mother-in-law after the deaths of their husband, where tradition would have said, you know, your marriage contract is over. You don't have an obligation here anymore. Indeed, by not leaving Naomi, they actually continued to live as if, in effect, the marriage contracts, in a sense, were still in effect. They were, as two women who could go on and remarry and rebuild their lives, in a sense, they were limiting their, they're limiting their lives by love and by kindness. limiting themselves in love. They were entitled to claim this contract sum from Naomi, but they refuse. So they're on this journey and Naomi knows that these women are, they don't need to come with her. And we've talked about this already. She pleads with them and Orpah turns around, but Ruth professes this, this deep loyalty and commitment to her widowed mother-in-law in this language that we talked about, where you stay, I will stay, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. You see, this word hesed, is the Hebrew word for love that is deeper than the English word for love. It actually means like a committed loving kindness or like a loyal love. That's what that word hesed means. It's based in a covenantal relationship. Steadfast love, a rock solid faithfulness that endures to eternity. And so Ruth is embracing hesed the embrace of kindness we see here. And this is, there may be no more significant a description in the whole of the scripture of how God relates to his people as the word hesed, loyal love. God loves his people so genuinely and so loyally. And they're one and the same, tightly bound together. 
God for his people will never cease to love them. And you see that in, for example, Isaiah 54. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing, my hesed love for you will not be shaken. Hesed is a love that is so enduring that it persists through any sin or any betrayal or it any brokenness, it mends and graciously extends forgiveness. We see that in Lamentations. No one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his hesed love, his unfailing love. Hesed is to love as God loves, the God of Israel. Ruth's a Moabite. When God's presence passed by Moses on Mount Sinai and he revealed his very essence, it says that God proclaimed his great hesed. And so it's amazing that this is the word that is used to describe the way that Ruth professes a deep loyalty and commitment and love to her widowed mother-in-law. Ruth owes Naomi nothing. In fact, Naomi is actually imploring Ruth, to, to, as I say, to stay in Moab and build a life for herself. But Ruth is a strong woman in this story. She is determined and committed and commits herself to a, to a form of family with Naomi that is well beyond her duty or her requirements or her expectations. Hesed love. Here's the second thing we can draw. This is another just a reflection on this chapter one of this story, is that Ruth shows the embrace of difference. The reason this commitment and love is actually so incredible and remarkable is because of the identities of the two women. Not the relationship that they are, daughter-in-law and mother-in-law, but remember Ruth is a Moabite and Naomi is an Israelite. And Israelites and Moabites just don't like each other. <laughs> It's not insignificant in this story in Scripture that Ruth is a woman from Moab. It's all over. In fact, for the reader that engages with this book, and we see it all over in Ruth 1, 4, 22, two, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, 6, 10, and 21, chapter 4, verse 5, and 10. Continually, it's like the writer is trying to remind us, don't forget that this woman, Ruth, is a Moabite. There's something to pick up here. There might have been a bit of scandal when the whole family left the farm at the beginning of the story and they left Israel in the famine. Maybe they didn't want to hang around in the famine. And, but yet that family, that Israelite family, probably were shocked and surprised to see themselves welcomed among the Moabites. Because after all, in Hebrew tradition, Moab was known for its lack of hospitality. And with some justification, because the story goes that when the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, they had just escaped Egypt and the rule under Pharaoh and the bricklaying empire, and the people of Israel had escaped there. They were hungry and they were thirsty and they were passing through Moab, but Moab was, the people of Moab were so suspicious that the Israelites would consume all of their resources that the Moabites hired a man to curse the people of Israel. That's the background to their relationship as two people groups. And furthermore, the Moabites had a reputation for licentiousness. And perhaps more than all of this, 
Israel knew that the Moabite origin of this people was to be found in the last scandal of incest in the origin story in Genesis. They just didn't like each other. And it's interesting that this book appears to have been written nearly to defend the lineage of David, King David who would come after and would have Ruth in his lineage as a Moabite. Like this book has been written as a, as a, a commentary on that in the scriptures. Because to the people of, Israel, to the people of Moabite, um, because he didn't help the Israelites coming out of Egypt, the law, the law didn't permit a Moabite to even join the community of Israel, never mind be its king. And yet here we have King David in the centuries later becoming the king. The, the king of Israel. And of course, we know that in Matthew, that Ruth appears in the genealogy of Jesus, the one true king of Israel. So this book is speaking to us and giving us hints and insights about the bigger redemptive work of God in the world. And so it does not let us forget Ruth's ethnicity because it's dynamite because Ruth's being portrayed positively. She's, she's actually mirroring the Hesed love of the God of Israel to Ruth, who she doesn't need to. Ruth's ethnicity is just constantly being brought up so we do not forget. And it went both ways. In Moabite tradition, the Israelites were perceived as greedy and voracious and looked upon as a nameless, faceless horde who would lick up everything, it says in Roman in Numbers 22. Basically, we have two groups of people here whose identities mean that they should not be together, working together. And so here you have this incredible loving kindness of Ruth the Moabite to Naomi the Israelite. And we see the text beginning to challenge us and speak to us. We begin to see it maybe mirroring God's Hesed love between these two people, and it's not their shared ethnicity that actually is the bond. And here's the third reflection I want to share with us this morning: is that there's an embrace of choice, challenging privilege and entitlement in this story, because here's the thing: there's a power dynamic at play in this narrative. If you have eyes to see it, because Ruth has options. She doesn't need to go with Naomi. Naomi is powerless. Her life is over. She is returning home. But Ruth has options. Ruth can go to her homeland. Ruth can rebuild her life. And yet from a position of power, relative power, Ruth makes a decision or a choice to help the vulnerable one. She shows Hesed love to Naomi unnecessarily from this position, again, mirroring the loving kindness of God, the steadfast, unfailing love of God. Orpah, we shouldn't judge Orpah because she went home and she, but she'd shown a lot of love to Naomi up to this point, and there's lots of references in the scripture of people from foreign lands, for example, the three, the wise men that came to see Christ did return. They saw the Christ and they returned, saw the, the Christ child and returned to Syria, and there's lots of examples of that. So Orpah is not a villain here, but there's a reason why this book's called Ruth, because it's the story of Ruth that is speaking to the people of Israel, and I think speaking to the greater redemptive arc of scripture. 
Because with options at her disposal, Ruth breaks the status quo. She embraces an, an uncertain and open future. And there's a new world of possibilities that they open, but it's full of uncertainty. And so three reflections, the embrace of kindness, a loving kindness, the said love of God, the embrace of difference, and the embrace of the other, the enemy, the other people that you shouldn't associate with. And there's the embrace of, of choice, of, of laying down yourself in a sense and loving the vulnerable. And we begin to see that there's a subversive nature to the book of Ruth, even in this first chapter. And we've only just got to the first chapter. And these are only just some of the reflections. And so the story would not be sitting comfortably with the reader because there's lots of questions posed, isn't there? Like, is there a way to really relate to other people based on, their na- based on something beyond their national identity or beyond their ethnicity or beyond their race? Perhaps how we actually treat one another in loving kindness mirrors the value of the Imago Dei and the image of God, the Hesed love of God that pursues us the Hesed love of God that commits himself to us radically. The one that pursues us in our desolation. The one that pursues us in our vulnerability. The one that crosses apparent boundaries and borders that would keep us from him and him from us. These are all crossed in love. And there is no more example, no greater example in the scriptures. This little story of Ruth speaks to that big story of God's redemptive plan. And there's no greater story in scripture than the boundary crossing love of Christ who came for a vulnerable, rebellious, broken world and laid himself down, emptied himself of all power and sacrificed himself on the cross. This is the gospel. And the gospel is found in the interpersonal relationship between a Moabite woman called Ruth and an Israelite woman called Naomi. So we have eyes to see that the gospel of peace and reconciliation and redemption is at work in this book. It's a powerful image. And so what does it say to us today, Redeemer? Why why are we talking about this? Why is it so relevant? Well, we live in a world that is so divided today. We live in a world that is divided by racial lines, by national identity lines, by borders, by political lines, by political opinions, political spectrum. What does this story have to say to us about our engagement with the world in a world that is so divisive and suspicious of the other? The world that is so fearful of showing love to the other. What might the followers of Jesus How might the followers of Jesus respond to this kind of world that we live in today, this escalation of division and suspicion and othering? Well, Jesus warns his disciples. I want to just switch to Jesus for a moment and talk about what he speaks to his disciples. He warns his disciples in Matthew 24. He says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not the end. So Jesus expects his listeners to be aware. Jesus is expecting his disciples to be aware that this story of history is is gonna go towards increasing tension. And 
you need to resist the temptation to live out of hard-heartedness and fear and suspicion and othering. It says this in Matthew 24, because lawlessness is increasing, these words Jesus, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So anyone listening to Jesus is told here not to be fearful, but to get on with the highest priority work, which is the announcing the gospel of the kingdom. What is this gospel? Joseph Hellerman, the quote hopefully will be up on the screen, says that the idea of salvation cannot be reduced to a personal relationship with Jesus only. God's plan is much more encompassing. God's intention for salvation is to be a community-creating event. The gospel is creating a community. The gospel is not for just individuals, but it is there for this whole world. It's a community-creating event. What the gospel isn't is something that would include Christians identifying with swift retaliation or increased surveillance, or growing suspicion, or incarceration, or hatred of the other, or fear. When James and John ask Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans who refused them entry as they traveled towards Jerusalem, Jesus actually rebukes them and says, you do not know the spirit that you're of, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So how are followers of Jesus meant to live in a world that's divisive? And how does that, how do we pull these threads out from the book of Ruth? Well, those following Jesus need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to love their neighbors, to love their enemies, and to actively pursue understanding and reconciliation. And I think for us, what this first looks like is that we take the log out of our own eye when it comes to our own prejudices and sins, the evidences of where we other or where we drive division, or where we act in suspicion and fear. We must refuse our natural placivity to judge the other, but we should seek understanding before we stereotype or label. Honest communication can only happen when we build relationships. It happens relationally. And we must remember the boundary-crossing, border-crossing chasm that the Hesed love of God is in Jesus. So the question today is, as we reflect upon these three reflections from the first chapter of Ruth, as we reflect upon what that means for Jesus' followers, the question is, who do you carry prejudice for? Who is different from you? For some of you, that might be a political figure. It might be liberal, it might be conservative. For some of you, it might be a neighbor. Some of you, it might be someone from a different part of the world. We should examine our hearts. We should also remember that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that the Jesus Project is to build bridges or gardens, as we like to call them here. I want, to, I want to read to you Galatians 3, 26 to 28, 29. And so in Christ Jesus... 
You are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there, there male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I'm gonna finish with a quote. It says this, that grace is more than being lucky to be on God's side. Grace is God's goodness, his hesed love, showered on people who've failed. Grace is God's love on those who think they're unlovable. Grace is God knowing what we're designed to be. Grace is God believing in us when we've given up. Grace is someone at the end of the rope finding new strength like Naomi. But there's more to grace. Grace is both a place and a power. Grace is God unleashing his transformative power. Grace realigns and reroutes a life and a community. Grace is when you turn your worst enemy into your best friend. Grace takes people as they are and makes them what they can be. Grace ennobles, grace empowers, grace forgives, grace frees, grace transcends, and grace transforms. The church that God wants is one brimming with difference. That's why I believe as we've reflected upon the first chapter of the book of Ruth, and as we sit in the context that we're sitting in today, in 2019, as we look at what's going on in our world around us, we should be encouraged because we have in our story the tools to build bridges and to bring hope and to bring life to a world that is so divided, to a world that is so fearful, to a world that is so anxious, to a world that is so suspicious. If we reflect the Hesed love of God to everyone, if we cross the borders of difference, if we use our privilege not for our own self-gain, but to lift up the vulnerable and the weak. I believe that we're living the way of Jesus faithfully. And I think that this book of Ruth is super subversive and there's so much more to come.